Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. Thank you to Draymond and Arnold and Quincy for the donations. It really means a lot. Remember, if you feel so inclined to help keep the show up forever, consider donating. Yeesh, I sound like NPR there. Oof, yikes. But last time, we reached the breaking point for the Han Dynasty. The last legitimate emperor was done, and the warlords and the military leaders were now in a position of ungodly power thanks to the short-term need to put down the Yellow Turban Rebellion. The people, by the way, as we said last episode, were still pissed off. So what could ever go wrong? Well, the final nail in the coffin for the Han Dynasty, and the grave being dug and the casket being lowered and then buried forever, what is it? What is interesting here, for us at least, is that this is not the end of civilized China. There is not some dark ages that happens where everything is lost and society eventually resets hundreds if not thousands of years later, if ever. No Roman collapse and then centuries delay for the next sizable thing in the area. The Romans had aqueducts. There was no sort of running water system like that in Europe for over a thousand years. No. The Han will collapse, if you don't count them as having done so already, and they will disappear. And while the era is known as a high watermark for ancient Chinese history, there will be bigger and better times ahead for China. From the Jin Dynasty shortly after this, to the Tang, to the Qing, and like always, there are ups and downs, but no cratering or resetting of the Chinese civilization. No Bronze Age collapse, no Dark Ages. In our short memory, China was in a proverbial dark ages as Europe encroached onto China as they industrialized first and as Japan invaded, to the fact in the last 20 years, though, China once again became a world leader. Now, compare that all to the actual European dark ages or the empires of the new world or whatnot. These were... Nothing more than rising and sinking tides against the grand scheme of Chinese history. They get bigger, they break apart, they have problems, but eventually, they seemingly just always reunify and hang around. So, let's wrap up the Han then. Literally years after they, and also us, started. So, without further ado... The History of China, Episode 62, The End. Born in the year of, we don't know, sometime in the early 140s, Dong Zhou would etch himself into history as one of the last great figures of the Han Dynasty. His whole ascendant career path seemingly has an inverse and linear relationship to the health of the Han Dynasty. The more powerful Dong Zhou got, every new title or gain in income or more power seemed to correlate directly with another step into the abyss for the Han 
dynasty. What do I mean? Well, let's start with his first noted job. And that was getting a position in the branch of the Imperial Guard in 165, who then were literally sent immediately to quell a Chang people's rebellion. See what I mean? Han gets weaker, Dong Zhou gets stronger. By the time the Yellow Turban Rebellion rears around, being the now skilled military leader that he was, he was commissioned by the Han government to fight against Zhang Jue, who, remember, is the Lord General of Heaven in Julu. Dong Zhou was no military genius at this point. He was nothing special. But he was getting something that would make him formidable in a time of strife such as this, which was experience and respect. So the Yellow Turban Rebellion happens, and it's extremely detrimental to the Han. I mean, some even credit it with the whole downfall. But guess who gets another leg up in this world? Dong Zhou. Look, it's not like he planned the whole thing to work out this way. He clearly did not orchestrate all the pieces that all combined to down the dynasty. But he was a ruthless and ambitious military commander in a time where the only thing you could possibly be to increase your societal standing, it seems, was to be a ruthless and ambitious military commander. And it was a time that if you were a ruthless and ambitious military commander, what was possible for you was impossible just a few years before. You'll see quite shortly, the sky is literally the limit now. As we know, though, even though the Lord General of Heaven got literally millions of people to directly or indirectly join the cause of the Yellow Turbans, Zhang Jue and his rebellion failed. But the people were not placated by this, obviously. As we went over, the heads of the snake and the organized armed components were killed or scattered, but the millions of peasants still had all the same grievances. Heck, after the rebellion ends, they probably had even more grievances. So, in 184, the Qiang people once again said, Saik Taimen, and started another rebellion in the Liang province in the very far northwest of the Han Dynasty. Now, guess who was given the command to take down the Qiang People's Rebellion? Duh, Dong Jue. Now, these rebels didn't go at it alone like an unruly mob. Well, okay, they were an unruly mob, but also they had the support of local gentries. So, Dong Zhou and a few other generals roll in there, and are met with a mass, which is now tens and tens and tens of thousands strong, marching deadies to the capital. The Han forces and the local warlords held the line, but quelling the rebellion and establishing actual imperial authority in the Liang province quickly became a ridiculous proposition, especially as the internals of the entire Han political court were crumbling. So they were holding their own. The rebellion wasn't going to spread much farther in this little isolated pocket. But the issue essentially became warlords versus the people. Fighting now not even really for the imperial court or to 
subdue the province and bring it back into the fold? No, this was something weirder. Because they were now fighting for their own spoils. Dongzhou gains. The Han loses. So by 189, one could say the rebellion was put down. It took some time. Because look, the rebels were no longer marching to the capital. That had been stopped long before. But the Liang province was all now but broken away from the dynasty. A land of warlords jockeying for power, territory, and position. With, obviously, Dongzhou being one of these. In a half-hearted attempt, though, to appear to still have some form of legitimacy, the imperial court awarded Dongzhou the governorship of a different province, which led him to look around, see his now massive army loyal to just him, look at all the land he now controls literally directly by himself, and say, nah, I'll pass, I'm good right here. By now he was ruthless, bearded, feared, and allegedly fat as heck, all with a massive combat-tested army loyal to him with his own revenue streams. Yikes. So we will leave Dong Zhou sitting in the Liang province, getting stronger and wealthier, and presumably fatter, but that's of less importance. And that brings us back to the palace. Emperor Shao, no more than a child as we know, was well by now merely a prize to be had by influential regents who viewed him less as a kid who needed some help for a little bit, but instead as a controller by which to influence their own personal decisions and willpower upon the dynasty. He was a tool for them to use, not a kid to raise. Emperor Shao's two main regents were his uncle, General-in-Chief He Jin, as we mentioned, and the Empress Dowager He. Obviously, they're siblings. Come on, they've been doing this for years now. The issue is that He Jin was on one side of Emperor Shao and saw this as his chance to have total power. But on the other side of Emperor Shao were the court eunuchs. This isn't like on one shoulder Emperor Shao has an angel, but on the other he has He Jin playing the part of the devil. No. He pretty much has two devils, each giving him horrible advice, all trying to gain for themselves. We know well by now that the eunuchs were equally as power-crazed and self-centered as He Jin could have ever imagined himself to be. So He Jin has an idea. And he went to his sister, the Empress Dowager, and said, essentially, Look, let's take the eunuchs out. Me and Yuan Shao, another military leader, have a plan to take out the ten attendants. We just need your blessing. Now, she, probably under some financial or other kind of influence from the eunuchs, or just some moral compass, said no. But He Jin wasn't about to take that lying down. Instead, he had a way to force her hand. So, He Jin reached out to Dong Zhou to come to the capital with a force and help pressure Empress Dowager to change her mind on her position on the ten attendants, who were the eunuchs. Welcome back, fat, bearded, 
powerful, and very much still a warlord, Dong Zhou. In 189, Dong Zhou gets this message. Agrees that this seems like a pretty good opportunity to get even more power, so then breaks camp with his army and begins to head to the capital. Keyword, begins. Because, as it has seemingly been for the last couple episodes, cue the Hollywood script level dramatic train wreck. In the time from breaking camp in the Liang province to actually arriving in the capital, all hell breaks loose. The eunuchs, being as cued into every inner working of palace life as they were and always had been, I don't know what He Jin was thinking, obviously got wind of a plan that a ruthless and ambitious warlord was being asked to come to the capital. So they had to act quickly because this warlord is on his way. They then forged a letter from the Empress Dowager asking He Jin to meet her at once about blah, 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 who cares? Sounds like the assassination of Caesar, and He Jin accepts. But when he arrives at the palace, like Joe Pesci getting made in Goodfellas, quickly realizes that this is a trap. And also like Joe Pesci in Goodfellas, by the time He Jin realized it was a trap, the eunuchs had already begun stabbing him, and soon decapitated him. Mind you, this is all while Dong Zhou is still marching towards the capital. Now, with no idea that the whole reason he was told to show up has been thrown out the window. What could ever go wrong? And this is where I will make one of the last comparisons to Rome. I mentioned Caesar, but when plotting to kill Caesar... The conspirators, who dubbed themselves the Liberators, only had about one thought in their mind, and that was killing Caesar. They didn't really seem to put much stock into anything else, it seems. Not purging his allies, not placating the people that liked him, not placating the people in general, etc. And this is widely credited as a key reason that they suffered their own demise shortly after. They left Mark Antony alive. They didn't deal with Caesar's allies, etc. This is not the history of Rome. But look, the eunuchs just killed He Jin. The ones that did that did not bother to take out Yuan Shao, the alleged mastermind of the whole idea to kill the eunuchs and then call in Dong Zhou when the empress said no. It was probably all his idea and they left him alive. Therefore, it is not a surprise that within moments of hearing the news that his friend just got decapitated by a bunch of conniving eunuchs, Yuan Shao and his imperial guards marched right into the palace, weapons out, and slaughtered every single eunuch they could get their hands on. And they killed a lot of them. In the chaos, a few eunuchs were able to actually snatch up the emperor and his eight-year-old brother, Liu Xie, and make a run for it. Remember, Liu Xie, by the way, he will be very important later. Anyway, as Yuan Shao is massacring the eunuchs, makes you wonder, though, why they even tried to use a warlord to pressure the empress if they could have just killed them like this in the first place, but look, oh well, there's a reason 
empires fall. But the few runaway eunuchs, with the emperor and his younger brother, sneak out of the capital and run out. They start escaping along the river. And that's when they run, headlong, right into Dong Zhou and his 3,000-man vanguard. Literally. The eunuchs, without weapons, and no, chill, I don't mean without those weapons, we knew that already by their name, realize that the jig is up and jump into the river to drown themselves, leaving boy Emperor Shao and his little brother in the hands of the warlord, Dong Zhou. Sorry, but absolute destruction of the imperial family and their court, Han Dynasty goes down, and now Dong Zhou goes up again. This whole story is just a series of unending, violent miscommunications, blunders, and horrendous decision-making powered by greed. But when you look at the Han, and you really look at it, what were they fighting over? Because in fighting for the emperor, they were essentially, and maybe this is just in retrospect, but they were essentially fighting over who gets to control a sinking ship. But I guess the logic is people only live for so long, while dynasties usually last beyond just one soul. Maybe you control him, up your life a little bit. Yeah, the dynasty's going downhill, but overall, I made my life better. That's all that matters. Little do they know, yeah, no. They're all going to go down with the ship. Dong Zhou had showed up to help pressure an empress to say yes to killing eunuchs. And now the eunuchs were all dead. And the person that ordered him and controlled him, and the person that ordered Dong Zhou here and ostensibly controlled the emperor, was also dead. Oh, who, by the way, was at the time of his death the general of the Han forces. And now here is Dong Zhou holding the emperor and his brother in his possession with all of the above. I don't think I need to rehash and re-explain how absurd this whole turn of events was, but alas, Dong Zhou marched into the capital with his army, promptly made himself chancellor, which by the way, a title that was never used in the Eastern Han and had only been used a few times in the Western, and just like that, we have a warlord emperor. I, I mean, regent, with heavy quotes. And remember all that fun we had about how one person flaunted the rules by carrying his sword to meet the emperor? Yeah, me too. That guy got punished for it, eventually. Dong Zhou instead legally changed that rule just for himself. So he is just, yeah, he's the emperor now. Tech, well, no, not really, but you get the picture. But to solidify his own power, because he still was not technically actually the emperor, Dong Zhou, before the end of 189, poisoned Emperor Shao, killing him, and installed his little brother, Liu Xie, as the new emperor, eight years old and all. The younger they are, the easier to control. And just like that, welcome eight-year-old Emperor Xie, the last emperor of the Han Dynasty. 
Obviously, this whole sequence of events with Dongzhou was an affront to the Han Dynasty, but also was an affront to all the other warlords who realized that the game had just changed. Before it was curry favor, now it's looking around being like, that could have been me. I could have been the one to stumble upon the little emperor. And I could have been the one to make myself chancellor. So whether because they actually believed they wanted to stop this clear usurpation, or because they all just saw a chance to better themselves and put themselves in Dong Zhou's position, several officials and warlords quickly created a coalition to stop Dong Zhou under the auspices of stopping him from usurping the rightful emperor. In my eyes, that was just what they said. I really doubt that every warlord that signed up had such pure motives. And you'll see, they properly didn't. But alas. In the spring of 190, this all kicked off. And Dong Zhou realized he needed to make moves. Literally. He decided that Emperor Xian should decide to move the capital back to Chang'an and burn Luoyang as the coalition neared. But Dong Zhou and his forces stayed behind just outside of Luoyang to cover the retreat and to also face his enemies. But after losing a couple of small encounters in quick succession, himself just retreated back to Chang'an. But from there, the coalition really didn't know what to do. It ground to a halt. Luoyang, they got there, is no longer the capital. They might have beaten Dong Zhou in a couple small battles, but now he's behind the walls of Chang'an with an absolutely massive force of his own troops and the ones he had taken from the emperor. Now, if you had guessed that a coalition of power-mad warlords and officials, all with their own motives, would indeed splinter the moment momentum was lost at all, then yeah, you are right. Because by the end of 191, the warlords couldn't agree on much and just went back to essentially ruling their own pseudo-kingdoms, with the likes of Cao Cao, told you to remember him, holding massive armies, a bunch of land, and a huge grudge against Dong Zhou. Though this is where the story just continues to get weirder. Because the very next year, in 192, while holed up in Chang'an, Emperor, uh, sorry, I mean Chancellor, Dong Zhou ruled like you would expect a warlord to, tyrannically and extremely violently. So it wasn't a surprise that people wanted him gone pretty quickly upon his arrival. And a couple of people were hatching a plan. Lucky for them, Dong Zhou's foster son, Liu Bu, was bubbling a fury on the inside because his adopted father, Dong Zhou, had actually thrown an axe at his head in a fit of rage and almost killed him. And the fact that Liu Bu had also fornicated with one of Dong Zhou's mistresses, which is a ginormous big no-no you could imagine what the punishment is. So, whether out of rage for the axe incident or out of self-preservation, because whenever he finds out you did that, Liu Bu was convinced to hatch a conspiracy. And in May 192, 
just a short bit of time after they even showed up at the capital, Liu Bu killed Dong Zhou. This is, for many people, the actual end of the Han. The provinces are all ran like it's the Warring States period, and the last true power broker holding any sort of real unity was dead, but the dynasty still has one last breath in it, because the dynasty will not die until the emperor does. So for the warlords, everyone knew what they had to do. Get Emperor Xian to their camp. Wherever he went, that's where the little bit of true authority lied. And it was Cao Cao who embarked on the most aggressive campaign against Liu Bu and anyone loyal to Dong Zhou. And for a couple of years, a few officials loyal to Dong Zhou held the emperor hostage and kept what's left of the ship afloat. But like seemingly everybody, they eventually started violently infighting for control in 195. In the chaos, the young emperor saw his chance and escaped. But where does he go? He tried to go to Yuan Shao, but he said no. And look, this kid is the most, for many people, the most wanted prize on the entire planet. You can't kill him. You need him just to get that smidge of whatever legitimacy is left in the Han Dynasty name. Again, they are literally fighting over who controls the sinking ship that is already listed and is 75% under. But Cao Cao moved his forces to Luoyang and received the emperor, promising him safety and power, blah, 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 blah. And once in his grasp, Cao Cao looked around with Emperor Xian and said, in Luoyang, this place is pretty burned out. Let's go home to my city. Can you please make that the capital? Now, given Luoyang was literally actually burned to the ground, and Cao Cao is, after all, offering him safety, it's not the craziest thing that Emperor Xian actually obliged, and move with Cao Cao in 196 to establish the city of Shuchang as the capital. This was, personally, in my mind, the end of the Han Dynasty, in all technical terms. In 196, because after this, every region is now seemingly under their own warlord-slash-vassal-king, and they're all revolted and infighting, the technical title of Emperor of the Han belongs to whoever can bring the Emperor physically into their vassal kingdom and proclaim that the capital— but no one really believes that anymore, do they? Well, some still do. So while I might think this is the end of the Han, it's got a little more life left in it. It's still got that one breath. Because look, there was no unification and no hope of it. Well, maybe some hope. But in retrospect, looking at it, there really was no shot of reunifying China. All it was now would be an attempt to play hot potato with Emperor Xian, but instead this time, hold the hot potato for as long as you can. Now, I'm going to skip over some of the infighting, because it is circular and pointless to an extent. But while Cao Cao would indeed be the most powerful and influential warlord, and he would, to his credit, 
you reunify northern China by sheer force. On March 15th, in the year 220, after aimlessly fighting revolts, winning a lot, losing actually not that much, Cao Cao died in his 60s. Emperor Xian gave him a posthumous title as king, but by then, the Han was fragmented like it had been during the Warring States. With no real purpose now in the year 220, Emperor Xian's value had dropped. No longer being a controllable child, and now there clearly was nothing to control, even if you had him, the states had all become so powerful on their own, they didn't really care. Cao Pi, the second son of Cao Cao, looked at Emperor Xian and said, it's time for you to abdicate. And not abdicate being emperor and make me the emperor, no, no, no. Because at this point, that title held no weight. No, instead, Cao Pi asked Emperor Xian to abdicate. So Cao Pi would inherit his father's state of Cao Wei. Not a dynasty, a state. Emperor Xian was so useless that he was actually allowed to live. And my theory is that because he wasn't a threat to anyone's legitimacy. What was he going to do? What was he entitled to? By now, all the states were autonomous. He was just a powerless kid. Well, he's a little older now, but he would live on until 234. But with that, the abdication of the emperor and, you know, people just stopped pretending it meant anything. There is now, in the year 220, no more Han Dynasty. It is over. 400 years, a golden age of not just China, but in the grand scheme of things, any civilization ever to this point, and for much more time to come. Well, there will be some Chinese dynasties coming that are pretty awesome, but poetry, culture, religion, military tactics, military weaponry, politics, economics, you name it. They had beaten the Xiongnu. They had been battered and beaten and had some crazy things happen, but they always came back. And most times, came back stronger. But this time, as we know, eventually it became terminal. Greed, ambition, lethargy, bad policy, whatever. It all added up. And now China drifts into 400 years or so of disunity. Doesn't mean they stopped innovating, doesn't mean that they went into a dark ages. It just means they were not unified. Why did the Han Dynasty collapse, you may ask? Hopefully I have articulated that this is more nuanced than just one thing or another. We have seen how the Han at different points were able to overcome some of the exact same challenges that they currently are facing. Revolts, conspiracies, you name it. Even bad policy. One single reason never did them in. They fought through it. No, instead, it was a slow death caused by a combination of simultaneous issues that each individually could have been avoided in their own right, as we have pointed out, but eventually all just became too overwhelming. 
Dennis R.M. Campbell summarized it best. And while this is a bit long, you could see that I could have made the last 30-odd episodes really short by just saying the following. On the end of the Han Dynasty, Dennis R.M. Campbell says, quote, Over time, they developed three main theories. The first theory, that the empire fell simply because of bad rulers. The second theory blames the fall on the influence of dowager empresses and court eunuchs over child emperors far too young to rule by themselves. The third theory suggests that the Yellow Turban Revolt caused the end of the dynasty. Modern scholars offer many more theories. According to one argument, the Han victory over the Xiongnu was the beginning of the end of the Han. Some believe that only warfare could keep the generals loyal to the empire. When there were no more strong tribal enemies to fight outside the empire, generals turned their aggression on the empire itself. They tried to take power for themselves. Other scholars blame the fall on the divide between the empire and its wealthiest members, pointing out that the emperors needed the support and money of the elites. Without it, they could not keep responding to crises such as invaders, rebellion, and natural disasters. End quote. Well, that about summarizes everything in the last 30 or so episodes. We've seen the issue with eunuchs and empress dowagers. We've seen the issue of bad rulers. We saw the yellow turban revolt. And you can imagine that the yellow turban revolt, if it had happened under, let's just say, a good emperor and a good strong time, isn't a big deal. You could see that a eunuch's getting too powerful during a good emperor or a good time wouldn't have been that big of a deal. But over time, it all just compounded. They started slipping up, and it only became faster. And the lesson to draw here is that everything is finite. We live in a cushy world where we live in a cushy world where literally nobody has ever had the, to face the idea of their little civilization collapsing. Now I get it. Here comes the, my mom and and her generation saying nuclear war, and I'm getting to that. But while dynasties fall and empires fall, the people who endure it are forced to live harder lives. Today, though the options are actually incredibly worse. We think we're going to last forever, and it's a fact that we won't. But the extreme of our average lives today to what could happen in a collapse is so much more steep and separated than those people's. And hear me out. With nuclear weapons and the reliance on global trade, on telecommunications, a collapse for us would mean the end of all civilization. But that's a bit meta for us, isn't it? The fall of Rome happened a few hundred years after this. But like the Han, had its end spelled out much before it actually collapsed. And like the Han, as Mike Duncan put it, Rome went out not with a bang, but with a whimper. As the Han went down for the final time, never to return, Rome was about to embark on the crisis of the 3rd century, a crisis it actually remarkably managed to sort of survive, only to fall a short bit later. I made this show to attempt to share the incredible story of China to those in the West, and I think the show has done just that. 
That is why this episode is titled The End. Because as we look back from the very first episode recorded from a dorm room in 2020 discussing the five emperors, we have now reached the end of the Han Dynasty. And with that, coincidentally, essentially the end of Rome. And like Rome, China still chugged along, just as the Eastern Roman Empire did, or sorry, the Byzantine Empire did. But I acknowledge they are not actually that similar. The Byzantine emperors, the Byzantine Empire spoke a different language and eventually became a people all to its own. And it's different because China's history continued. That's what made them different. The civilization might have been down a couple times, but it never reset. The Egyptians went from pharaohs to being blown out in the Bronze Age collapse to a local kingdom to a client state to part of a Muslim caliphate. Europe detonated after the fall of Rome and was torn up and reformed by this way or that by a new tribe or new religion or whole new peoples. Not China. China's dynasties may have fallen, but China remained. Now, of course, the modern nation-state idea wasn't really felt the way it feels now back then, but modern-day China is the current chapter in the continuously long-running story of China. Eventually, China would reunify, just like it did after the Warring States. Then it would break apart, maybe entirely, sometimes just a region or two, sometimes an invasion here. But modern-day China is the same China. It's just another step and chapter in the history of China. And that is why this is where I'm ending the show. I have told the story I want to tell. And I hope I've inspired enough of you to get into Chinese history and take it a step further and explore what happens next. I cannot reasonably make it to the modern day. Not at this level of depth. I would be literally 80 years old. Which would, though, leave the story incomplete. It would just be a running chronological story with no end or point. No, because my point was to, as you know juxtapose civilizations that the West might know that existed at the same time. And I think I did that. I love Chinese history, clearly. But I love other history, too. And I want to share other history with you all, and don't worry, in due time, I will. But the fact is, I cannot deliver the show in its current form forever. I'm sure if you've binged the show quickly or all the episodes back to back to back without waiting, you've probably heard a lot of apologies and for delays and thought nothing really of it. But as some of you longtime listeners from 2020 will know, well, they sat through some delays. It is simply something I cannot continue to do with the love, passion, and intensity you all deserve. Because I thought I would get to this point, that is, wrapping up the Han, which actually was the focus of my very first history podcast, in about a year. Over three years and 62 episodes later, nearly 30 full hours and 
what, 200,000 words of content later, we have reached that point. This was the original goal. But we dove in heavy, and we dove all in together. This show was started when I was a junior in college, before COVID had even started. Since the show started, we got through the stiffest of lockdowns. I did my senior year of college, graduated, got my first job, moved to a new city, made whole new friends, started a whole life. Then I got a second job, moved to Texas, started a whole new life. Am thriving, by the way. I love it here. And this show has been with me through it all. And because this show has, you all have been too. I've had multiple relationships through this show, which maybe shows that the um, love of history goes deeper than any other love you can have with a person. But who knows? No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm trying to keep it light before I get emotional on everybody. This show was my pride and joy, and it always will be. And you all made it happen. While I obviously had the eagerness to do it alone with no followers, the fact that you all showed the amount of love and appreciation for what I was doing to the degree you all showed fueled me and filled me with a sense of pride and joy that I really can't describe. But I have done my part, told the story that I could, and leave the rest to you. We peaked at number one in mainland China, never had a down week in subscriber count. We were always growing every week, over week since the first week to the crazy number we're at now across all platforms. Did you guys know that this show has been listened to in 132 countries? If you had told me as a junior in college that people in 132 countries, and obviously that's skewed to a couple of them, but still, if you had told me a people in 132 countries would learn about Chinese history with you, I, I wouldn't have believed it. I'm so happy, but really just so grateful that I got to take you on the journey with me to explore the incredible history of China. I didn't know it all off the top of my head. I had to do research too. It was like we were learning it together. But now, really... It is on you to explore on your own. I hope I have prepped you well. Now, if you are listening to this show after August of 2023, don't think I'm not reachable. The website will be up still, hopefully. Now, it will. The website will still be up. My LinkedIn is still there, and so is my email and my Twitter. And I know, I deleted Instagram. The funny memes were cut off. But feel free to reach out. If you go to China or see something cool or have thoughts or anything, don't be a stranger. I'm going to have a new project coming up, and it will be a totally different format than this. But right now, that's not the time. I will post a message to this podcast when that time comes with updates on what's happening next. Because don't worry, something is definitely happening next. Given I've told the story I can, it is time for me to explore other histories and reveal to you 
a whole new topic that we can all go and learn together again. So with tears in my eyes, thank you all. And sadly, there is no more next time on the history of China.